Dateline, Rome, Italy, 62 A.D. A ship from Alexandria arrives with a special passenger, Paul, leader of Christianity, prisoner of Rome. Paul was arrested in Jerusalem for insurrection. That was the charge. He was held for two years in the Roman stockade there in Caesarea. As a Roman citizen, it was Paul's legal right to appeal his case, and so he opted to stand before the emperor. We have no record of his encounter with the Caesar, but I'm sure by the time Paul was done, it was Nero who felt like he was on trial. Count on Paul to present the ruling Roman with a compelling witness for Jesus Christ. Imagine the showdown that had to have been. The showdown in Nero's palace. The apostle of the Gentiles stands before the king of the Gentiles. At Paul's conversion, Jesus had predicted that Paul would bear his name before Gentiles and kings. And now the moment had come. The apostle Paul confronts the king of the Gentiles with the good news of the king of kings. Now, secular historians note a marked change in Nero around the time of his meeting with Paul, 62-63 AD. Apparently, Nero went nuts. The guy went insane. It's possible Nero's rejection of the gospel helped, uh, helped him along his demise. Demon possession probably best explains his behavior. Nero ended up one of the cruelest rulers of all time. He even murdered his own wife and mother for political advantage. Nero was an egomaniac. He loved to show off his building prowess, the great stadiums that he erected, the pagan temples. But the city of Rome had run out of room, and Nero needed more space. And so, on July the 19th, 64 AD, a fire started in the woodsheds near the Circus Maximus. Later, it was reported that Nero's servants were seen running away from the sheds just before the blaze started. The fire engulfed the city of Rome. It raged for ten days. It torched two-thirds of the downtown area. And everyone suspected Caesar Nero to be the arsonist. He'd burned his own city just to show that he could rebuild it in honor of himself. As the old saying goes, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. And when the fingers started pointing at Nero, he needed a scapegoat. And so guess who he blamed? Nero blamed Rome's destruction on the Christians. He launched a massive crusade to persecute the followers of Jesus. He burned them at the stake to light his parties. Nero clothed the Christians in animal skins and threw them to the wild dogs. He watched them get mauled. Christians under Nero were crucified, executed by gladiators, torn apart by ferocious lions. Nero's persecution was relentless and it was merciless. Finally, in 65 AD, he arrested the two champions of Christianity, both Peter and Paul. For Paul, it was his second arrest. That same year, Peter was crucified upside down for the sake of his Savior. A few months later, the Apostle Paul was beheaded. For the moment now, Paul, his head is on the chopping block, but his heart is in the heavens. He's in Rome's maritime prison. I've been there, by the way. It's a dungeon. It's a cold, damp, subterranean cave. In Paul's day, it was rat-infested and sewer-infected. 
The prison that held Paul was just off the famous forum. And there he could hear the mindless chants of the pagan worship outside. He could smell the burning of the sacrifices offering to idols. Paul wasn't far from where the Colosseum would later be constructed. In years to come, the Colosseum would become a graveyard for Christians. The site might have been chosen because it was already a killing field. So picture Paul as he writes this letter. He's chained to a dungeon wall. He hears the screams of fellow believers being tortured for their faith. He hears the cries of pagans in their temples. He knows at any moment he could be next on the chopping block. Paul, welcome to Rome. And in dire straits, what is his priority? Guess what he does? He writes a letter to a friend. As he awaits a date with the executioner, he pens his final words to young Timothy. And he begins, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. Paul isn't awaiting death in his mind and in his heart. He's full of the promise of eternal life in Christ Jesus. Hanging over his head isn't a gloomy cloud, but a glorious sunrise. Jesus has guaranteed to Paul eternal life. Paul writes to Timothy, a beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I love how Warren Wiersbe points out, Paul added mercy to his greetings to pastors, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. Paul knew that pastors need mercy. Indeed they do. Hey, a pastor is always trafficking in issues over his head. Who am I to speak for God and represent him? Being a pastor is a sobering responsibility. James chapter 3 warns pastors, Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Pastors need to hear that. But I'm also glad that God tempers that judgment with mercy. And so here's another way you can be like God. Have a little mercy on your pastor. Paul says in verse 3, I thank God. He does what? Jail for Paul wasn't three square meals, a nice cable TV, access to the prison library and the weight room a couple of times a day. Oh no, Paul, he's in a deep, dark prison. I mean, Paul is in a cave. The light is dim. The air is damp and cold. Paul poops in a can. If he eats anything at all, it's the scraps that some other persecuted saint has pushed in his direction. The apostle Paul is old and tired and about to die. And yet notice what he does. He says, I thank God. I'm not sure that would have been the first thing I would have written. I might have explained my grumblings and my murmurings and my whining. I might have focused on myself and my own trial. But not Paul. He's not worried about his own plight or his own future. He's full of praise and gratitude to God. You remember the pilgrims who got off the Mayflower? Life in the New World was tough. The first year, these people made seven times more graves than huts. And yet that first year, they decided to set aside a day of thanksgiving of all things. It really is all about perspective, isn't it? 
It really is all about perspective. Paul says, He thanks God, whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did. Paul is concluding his ministry with no regrets. His conscience is clear. He's taken no shortcuts. He served God with integrity. The Columbus Isoline is a ship used by the University of Miami to collect chemical, physical, and biological data on the currents of the Florida Straits. The information accumulated helps to manage oceanic oil spills. But ironically, while working in the Florida Keys, the Columbus Isoline ran aground and spilt 200 gallons of diesel fuel into the deep blue sea. Rather than being part of the solution, the scientific team from the University of Miami became part of the problem. And did you know this can also be said of many Christian ministers? We can poison what it is we seek to protect. If we don't conduct ourselves in a godly and in a gracious manner, if we don't care about our integrity and seek to finish well, we can pollute what it is we attempt to serve. Paul served God and he prayed for Timothy. As without ceasing, I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. Now you know Timothy is on the outside shedding some tears for Paul. But here his friend Paul is on the inside of this prison. And guess what he's doing? He's shedding some tears for Timothy. He's praying for his friend. And when he thinks of Timothy, he can't help but to remember Timothy's family. Verse 5. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. Notice, only genuine faith is detected by kids in their parents. Did you know this? Kids have an innate radar that filters out anything phony. Parents, your children will be impressed by your relationship with God only if it's real, if it's genuine faith. Acts chapter 16 verse 1 tells us that Timothy's dad was not a believer. But both his mom and his grandma were sincere Christians with a vibrant faith. I'm not sure that's quite how Timothy looked, but that was the mom, grandma, son picture I could find. And these two ladies, his grandma and his mom, Lois and Eunice, they had a profound impact on Timothy. This should be a great encouragement tonight for single moms. Lady or ladies who are married to unbelievers. Single parents can still raise a child surrounded by Christian influence. That was what Lois and Eunice did for Timothy. I hope all parents understand their top priority is their child's spiritual formation and development. So what if your kid can read and write? So what if you sharpen their athletic skills? So what if you send them to college? So what if you turn them into good citizens and if in the end they die and go to hell? Christian psychologist James Dobson comments, I urge you as parents of young children to provide for them as an unshakable faith in Jesus Christ. This is your most important function as mothers and fathers. How can anything else compare in significance to the goal of keeping the family circle unbroken in the life to come? 
Our goal as parents is to pass down our faith to our kids. And realize, you don't pass along faith like you pass down curly hair and big feet. Faith is not a matter of genetics or germs. I mean, breathing on your kid won't make them a Christian. Even proximity to other Christians is no assurance that they'll become Christians themselves. Passing down spiritual values is a lot like a quarterback passing to his split end. It's a voluntary act on both ends of the connection. The quarterback picks the right time, and he throws the ball to the right spot, and he puts on it the right touch. A pass completion requires timing and targeting and touch. And even a perfect pass has to be squeezed by the receiver, doesn't it? It has to be taken and pulled into his chest. Likewise, faith ultimately is a personal decision. We can't make that decision for our kids. We can only pass them the ball the best that we can. We can use timing and targeting and touch to convey God's truth. But the kid ultimately has to pull it in. Paul continues, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Timid Timothy was how Tim was known to his friends. According to chapter 2, uh, I'm sorry, according to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, Timothy's gift was evangelism. That was his spiritual gift. Apparently, he had a knack for communicating his faith to unbelievers. But because of his fears and his inhibitions, he allowed his spiritual gift to lie dormant. Timothy had sort of put his gift on the shelf. He needed to get it out, blow it off, and start using it again. Have you ever gotten out of a swimming pool on a cold day? I mean, once you dry off and warm up, it's awfully hard to make yourself go back in again, isn't it? And this was Timothy's problem. He'd gotten away from the struggle. You know, it started out just a break from ministry. Oh, I just want to take a little time off. But now that he had dried off, he was having a hard time wanting to get back into the water. Timothy needs to grit his teeth and stir up a desire and dive back into the pool. Maybe some of you tonight need to do the same thing. You've dried off a bit and that's a little bit more difficult to jump back in. Stir up the gifts that God has put in you. Don't be a Timothy. And here's why. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. If the spirit of Jesus courses through your spiritual veins, he'll drive out fear with a fresh supply of power and love and wisdom. You know, some folks, they fear failure. But don't be overcome. The Spirit of God gives His people power to succeed. How do you overcome failure? It's by receiving His power. The Greek term for power is dunamis or dynamite. The Holy Spirit is a source of boldness and spiritual power. If you fear failure tonight, you need to pray for an outpouring, for the filling and baptism of the Holy Spirit. Other folks fear people. And yet the Spirit also counters this fear with what? With love. You remember the verse, perfect love casts out all fear? What Jesus did for mankind overshadows what man can do to me. If I really love the way Jesus loves, it'll drive out that fear of people. 
And still other folks are full of the fear of the unknown. And this is why a sound mind, good wisdom that fixes on what's sure and certain, that focuses on God's word and his promises, this is what will drive out the fear of the unknown. We all are tempted by fear, fear of failure. This is why we need the power of the Holy Spirit. The fear of people, this is why we need perfect love. And the fear of the unknown, this is why we need a sound mind. Remember in Luke chapter 9, verse 55, Jesus turned to James and John and he rebuked them saying, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. Hey, let's not make that same mistake. Our world today is controlled by fear. Fear of failure in people and the unknown. But God has given us a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. Verse 8 tells us, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. You see, Timothy had gotten discouraged when he looked at Paul's plight. I mean, his mentor is in chains. That can get you down. Paul tells Timothy, do not be ashamed. Understand, Paul was the prisoner of Jesus, not of Rome. Evil men can chain Paul, but not the gospel. It's the power of God. Timothy is involved in a movement of God that will overtake the world and determine the destiny of all men in all times. Paul says, don't be ashamed of me. Timothy needs to forget about Paul's chains and recall the salvation that he preached. Verse 9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Paul is in prison for a moment. But God's purposes and grace have been at work since before time began. Paul is saying, don't get trapped and tripped up by the momentary trouble that you see. Don't lose sight of God's eternal purposes. God is working out his plan. Boy, the same could be, we could be encouraged to do the same in our lives. And he says, keep your eyes on Jesus, verse 10. But has now been revealed by the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Paul is a jailed prisoner, but he serves a Savior who is risen and victorious. And Paul's goal is to serve him, come what may. He says, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. Paul's hope, his faith, his calling burned so hot that it couldn't be doused by a temporary trial. Reminds me of the two swamp people living down on the bayou. One day they treat a bobcat. One fella, he climbed up the tree and he shook the limb. The other stood at the bottom of the tree to bag the cat when it fell out of the tree. When that cat hit the ground, fur and skin and blood all started flying. The boy up in the tree shouted down, Can't you grab a little old bobcat? His partner replied, I can grab him all right. My problem is letting him loose. Hey, this is the problem with the gospel. Once you grab it, once its power is unleashed in your life, there's no letting go. Paul would rather lose his head to a sword than turn loose of the gospel. Two weeks ago, 
An Alabama school bus driver named Charles Poland was shot to death trying to protect his kids from a crazed man seeking a hostage. Poland has now been hailed as a hero in Dale County, Alabama. When his wife was interviewed, she spoke of nights on the front porch where she and Charles would sip coffee and they'd watch the sunset. And she quoted to the reporter their favorite Bible verse. It's our next verse here in this chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Lydia Poland commented on this verse. She said, that is what I hold on to right now. God knows he's the only one who can bring closure to my heart right now. And her faith should be commended. She not only knows the words to 2 Timothy 1 verse 12, she knows what it means. Paul here suffers inexplicable trials. He's treated as the dregs of the earth. Life isn't always fair. What he endures doesn't make sense to him, but he holds on to his hope in Christ. Paul is persuaded that come what may, Jesus is committed to his ultimate triumph. Apparently, Lydia Poland has the same confidence that he is able to keep what we commit to him in that day. And notice Paul doesn't say, I know what I have believed. Now, he did know what he believed, but that's not what he says here. For ultimately, Christianity is not just a faith in a set of doctrines or precepts or philosophy. No, Paul's faith is in a person. Notice what he proclaims. I know whom I have believed. His confidence in the face of trials is in the risen Christ. And he is persuaded that no matter what happens today or on any other day, that when it comes to that day... When this life is over and we stand before God, Jesus will stand by our side and receive us for his mercies and his favor. In other words, a life committed into the hands of Jesus Christ becomes a guaranteed investment. Paul charges Timothy in verse 13, Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you Keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Now here's a really good gift. A pattern of sound words that promote faith and love. If you've been blessed to sit in a church where you've received a steady pattern of sound words, then you have received, you've been the recipient of a truly marvelous gift. Richard Niebuhr, he once said, the great Christian revolutions come not by discovering the discovery of something that was not known before. They happen when somebody takes radically something that was always there. We don't need new truths. But we need the faithful reminder of what's biblical and what's right and what's true. We need to be under a pattern of good words, of sound words. And then he says in verse 15, This you know, that all those in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Now these were former fair-weather friends of Paul who had abandoned him when it was tough to be Paul's friend. 
I mean, once Paul was jailed, they bailed on their support. Timothy knew these men too. And here Paul points them out. Whereas verse 16, the Lord granted grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. Onesiphorus means profit-bearing. And this man was certainly a prophet or a blessing to the Apostle Paul. Onesiphorus' mission to the Rome Roman prison where Paul was staying reminds me of Alvin Strait's journey to Wisconsin. Maybe you've heard this story. Alvin was 73 years old. He lived in Iowa. Alvin couldn't get a driver's license because his eyes were so bad. Nor does he trust buses and planes. But Alvin's brother had a stroke. And Alvin wanted to be there for his brother. And so guess what he did? He cranked up his 1966 John Deere lawnmower and he drove it 200 miles to Blue River, Wisconsin just to be with his brother in a time of need. This was the dedication of Onesiphorus. He traveled all the way from Ephesus to Rome. He knew that Paul was in prison and needed the support of a friend. That's a more difficult journey than Alvin's from Ephesus to Rome. Onesiphorus, he found Paul in the prison and he risked his life to stay by his side and lend him some help. Paul says of Onesiphorus, The Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day. And you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. Onesiphorus was a servant of the Lord and a servant to Paul. You know, some people give off airs. Other people pollute the air. Still others are real stinkers. But apparently, Onesiphorus was a breath of fresh air. You need those kind of people in your life. We all should seek to refresh one another. Well, chapter 2 begins, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now here's the golden principle of discipleship. How should we mature believers and grow the church? Well, you know, I could go out and I could win people to Jesus, and then I could spend my time trying to help them grow. And hopefully in my lifetime, I could win a few hundred people to Jesus. Or I could win a few people to Jesus, help them grow, then teach them to go out and win others and help them grow. Then they could go out and win others and help them grow. And then suddenly, the exponential effect kicks in. The impact now swells to thousands, not just hundreds. It's the difference between 2 plus 2 plus 2 equals 8. And 2 times 2 times 2 times 2 equals 16. D.L. Moody put it this way, I would rather set 10 men to work than to do the work of 10 men. 10 people can accomplish far more than just one person. Understand, the word disciple means learner. And every Christian should be learning and growing in Christ. Yet the disciple doesn't simply remain a learner. The learner should become a teacher. You see, you should be becoming a teacher. You come every week, you learn, you learn, you learn. That's good. But at some point, you've got to transition from a learner to a teacher. I'm teaching you the Bible from week to week in hopes that you'll go out and teach others, and then they'll teach others, and then they'll teach others. 
And when you win folks to Jesus and help them grow, you'll encounter hardship. You certainly will. Satan won't allow your efforts to go unchallenged. You're sitting back. You're learning. He's not threatened. But when you go and start teaching others yourself, you're going to be resisted. This means that you, you need to cultivate endurance and fortitude. And in the next few verses, Paul uses three analogies to help us add fortitude to our faith. Paul points to three occupations. The soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. And he's going to teach us that a soldier leads a streamlined life. An athlete lives a structured life, and a farmer lives a sustained life, and the Christian needs to exemplify all three examples. Now notice first the soldier. He says, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Warfare is... Uh, Warfare is a full-time occupation. I mean, when you're a soldier, you don't do anything else. You're a soldier. When you're fighting for survival and freedom, you don't have time to mow the lawn or tend the flower beds. Your total attention should be directed toward the battle. And spiritually, we're all involved in a battle. And thus, we can't allow ourselves to get too distracted by secular concerns. Sure, we've got to go to work. We've got to be good stewards of our stuff. But we can't take our eyes off the battle. All Christians need to develop a wartime mentality. We need to remember that the life is short, that the stakes are high. We need to streamline our lives. Make sure we're putting first things first. Robert Moffat, he said this, We'll have all eternity to celebrate our victories, but only one short hour before sunset in which to win them. That's why we need to be good soldiers. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Got one name for you. Lance Armstrong. Has there ever been a bigger fall from grace? Stripped of seven Tour de France championships for cheating, for blood doping. He's now being sued. There's a criminal investigation underway. He will forever bear the stigma of shame. So what if you achieve a moment of glory? Only to be disqualified later. Ask him now if he thinks it was worth it. Now that he's been stripped of his awards and sent away in shame and everyone knew that that he cheated. And the same is true spiritually. Understand this. When it comes to serving the Lord, the ends doesn't justify the means. When a Christian takes shortcuts or uses loopholes or uses manipulation to achieve their goals, even spiritual goals, it fails to please God. We were talking about our pa former, pa former pastor one night, my mom and I, pastor years and years ago we knew. I mean, this guy, he hurt so many people. He, he was so uh, arrogant and proud. He did so much damage for the cause of Christ. And we were sitting there and talking, my mom said, but he led a lot of people to the Lord. I said, but mom, the ends doesn't justify the means. 
When it comes to Christian ministry, it's not just what you do for God that counts. It's how you do it. You leave behind a wake. And it's either a wake of hurt and shortcut and pain, or it's a wake of integrity and righteousness. For the athlete's achievements to be meaningful, he has to play by the rules. And so does the Christian. Our desire to accomplish great things for God should not override our commitment to do things God's way. God's work should always be done God's way. And finally, verse 6, the hardworking farmer, he must first partake of the crops. I mean, a farmer has to eat from the harvest if he's going to sustain his strength to do the work. And while we're ministering for the Lord, we always need to be nourished by the Lord. If we're just putting out spiritually over and over and never stopping to take in, we'll eventually dry up. The farmer who's overworked and underfed runs out of steam. And likewise, the Christian, even the pastor. God's servants need to eat from what they're feeding. They need to eat their own feed. He concludes these analogies. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. Now remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffered trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. I mean, you can chain the messenger, but you can't change the, chain the message. It's been said of the Bible, it outlives, outlifts, outloves, outreaches, outranks, outruns all other books. You can't hold down the truth of God's word. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they may also, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul could endure persecution knowing that through his sufferings, others would hear the gospel and obtain salvation. He says, this is a faithful saying. This faithful saying that he's about to utter now is one of several in Paul's pastoral letters. The others are in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, chapter 4, verse 9, Titus chapter 3, verse 8. Apparently, these faithful sayings were liturgies used in the worship of the early church. The church would recite declarations of faith as reminders of the truth that God of God's Word. And here is a taste of early Christian worship. That's why these verses are important. This gives you a feel for what the early church confessed and believed among each other. They would speak these next verses in unison. For if we died with Him, we shall also live with Him. If we endure, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. He cannot deny Himself. I love the poetic, the rhythmic, the easy-to-memorize way that these early Christians recited elements of their faith. And notice the paradoxical structure that they used. If we die, we'll live. If we endure, we'll reign. If we deny Him, He'll deny us. If we're faithless, He remains faithful. It's just an easy way to remember special truths. Now, each of these statements teaches an essential truth on which these early Christians lived their lives and based their faith. First, notice the positive reminders. He says, if you trust in the crucified Christ to put an end to your sin, you'll experience spiritual life. If we die with Christ, we'll live with Him. 
If you endure hardship knowing that one day your faith will earn for you authority in Christ's kingdom, if you endure, you'll reign. But then there's also two negative reminders. If a man denies Christ, then the Lord has no other choice than to deny him. He'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me. And the last line of this liturgy is often misinterpreted. It says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. And people will use that as a license to be faithless. Oh, if we're faithless, oh, he'll stay faithful to us. That's not what he's saying. They'll say, see, if I stop having faith in Jesus, he'll remain faithful to me. That is not what he means. If you're faithless, he does remain faithful. But it's not faithful to a faithless person. He remains faithful to his own word. God tells us that salvation is by grace through faith. Thus, if you have no faith, how can he make exceptions? He's got to be true to himself and what he said. Thus, if, if you're faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. The last line of the liturgy is a warning, not a comfort. Verse 14, remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit, to ruin, to the ruin of the hearers. I'll never forget a conversation I had with a man at the Masters one year. We were sitting right there next to the 18th green. And he was talking about some pastors that he knew that had gone to seminary for years and years and years. And finally he says to me, he says, man, he says, I don't understand why a pastor has to spend that much time in school. All you guys got is one book. I love that. The guy said a mouthful. If pastors took the time to master that one book, You know, if they didn't waste so much time on other subjects, words to no profit, as Paul puts it, if they spent their time on that one book, how much better off the people of God would be who sat under their ministries. Verse 15, Paul commands us all, be diligent to present yourselves approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I love this phrase, rightly dividing. You know what it means? Literally in the Greek language, it means to cut straight. The Greek word was used to describe a farmer in the fields who plowed a straight furrow. Or a carpenter cutting a board to an exact angle. We all need to be diligent in our understanding and interpretation of God's word. Exactness is required when we handle the scriptures. A haphazard approach, a sloppy approach is an insult to what this book is all about. It's God's Word. You know, carpenters have slogans that should also speak to how we interpret, interpret the Bible. Carpenters say, measure twice, cut once. Before a carpenter makes a cut, he slows down. He double checks. He rethinks. He stabilizes the board. The cut is made only after painstaking precision. The slightest slip or miscalculation can produce a disaster. If he's just a fraction off, he can ruin what he's building. And this is true of a pastor. He has to pay careful attention to the breaking open of the Word and the interpreting of the Scripture. He needs to give it his utmost attention and care. Verse 16, But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. 
Why is it foolish, empty speculation spreads like wildfire while sound doctrine flows through the church like molasses? Why is that? Paul says, and their message will spread like cancer. You know, false doctrine, superstition, misguided conjecture, it tends to metastasize in the body of Christ like a cancer does in a human body. This is why it has to be cut out as soon as possible. You can't put it off. And Paul points to two examples, two men that it happened to. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth. Now you recall back in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, Hymenaeus was the person whose faith had been shipwrecked, Paul said. And Paul had delivered him to Satan to learn not to blaspheme. And here was his error saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. Hamanaeus may have taught a Gnostic heresy. You know, some false teachers had denied a literal resurrection, that God had no plans for our physical bodies, and thus believers were free to abuse their flesh in immoral, indulgent manners. If God has no, no purpose for your body, then oh, why, why not? Fill it up with whatever you want or do with it whatever you please. That was the false teaching he was advocating. Paul counters him in verse 19. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. It does matter how you live your life and what you do with your body. Verse 20, but in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. This is what you need to understand as a church member, as a member of the body of Christ. If you attended a state dinner at the White House, you'd probably dine on expensive china. You know, the oldest presidential china was purchased by James Monroe in 1817. The plates are decorated with a presidential eagle. They're priceless. But if you toured the kitchen, you'd probably also find some regular dishes. Maybe even some paper plates and some plastic cups. Dishes that get soiled and then get tossed out regular. You would find vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor in the same house, would you not? And you'll find the same in the house of God. There's the pure teaching of God's Word, served up on plates, beautifully embossed with the seal of the Holy Spirit. These are vessels of honor that rightly divide the Word of God. This is what we want. But also in the same house, you'll encounter some impure doctrine from some unreliable vessels. Teachers who contaminate the pure Word of God through their own speculative opinions. Paul says in verse 21, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful for the Master, prepared for every good work. I hope you want to be a vessel of honor. The Greek name Timothy means God-honoring. Paul wants his young protege to live up to his name and how he cares for and handles the Word of God. We all need to be vessels of honor, fit for good works. Verse 22, flee also youthful lusts. I like what Ronald Reagan once said. He said, middle age is when you have two temptations and you choose the one that will get you home by 9 p.m. 
(laughs) In contrast, Timothy was a young man and therefore vulnerable to all the temptations of youth, sex and power and greed and vanity and popularity and pride. Timothy needs to flee anything that might draw him from Christ or ruin his effectiveness for Christ. You remember how Joseph reacted to Mrs. Potiphar's sexual advances. He didn't try to be polite to her. He didn't try to let her down gracefully and easy. He ran from her. He raced from her embrace. And that's how young men should handle temptation. Sprout wings and flee. There's another old saying. Most people who flee temptation usually leave a fording address. And that's why Timothy should not only flee temptation, but in its place pursue noble pursuits, noble preoccupations. Paul tells him, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Verse 23 but avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. I mean, what difference does it make how many angels fit on the head of a pen? Really. I mean, some issues make for a good argument, but that's about it. Nothing else. It's just stuff you want to argue over. Steer away from that stuff. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition. Notice he corrects others by watching his step lest he slip. Nobody has perfect doctrine. We all have blind spots, areas where we can learn. Thus, when we correct others, we need humility. If God, perhaps, will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, And that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Notice when a person comes to his senses, it ultimately results in God granting repentance. God uses us, but only his Holy Spirit can change a man's heart. Only the Holy Spirit can spring a person from the snare of the devil. 